The following message was given at Emanuel Baptist Church, Coconut Creek, Florida. Uh, if you have your Bibles, if you'll turn with me to the Gospel of Luke, and um, I'm just going to pick up this evening with where I left off uh, in the Gospel of Luke in the mornings. Um, they're doing something different in the morning now, but at chapter 13, Luke chapter 13, so if you'd like to turn there. And I'm going to read the first five verses of uh, Luke chapter 13. Uh, there were present at that season some who told him about the Galileans, whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And Jesus answered and said to them, Do you suppose that these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans, because they suffered such things. I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse sinners than all other men who dwelt in Jerusalem? I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Let's pray together. Our Father, we are thankful tonight for all that we have already heard today and, and all that we have experienced today of your mercies and kindness to us in public worship this morning and this evening. And yet, Lord, we know that you are a God who is full of grace and that there's a sense in which we cannot expect more from your grace than your grace is able and willing to give. And therefore, we would boldly come before you once again in the name of Christ and pray that you'd bless us from your holy word tonight, that you would grant the help of your spirit. And we pray that you would do this for your glory's sake and for the glory of your son. We ask it in his name. Amen. <clears throat> in the last several years, uh, there have been many events that have caused great sadness uh, damage and, and uh, oftentimes loss of, of human life. There have been terrible atrocities like terrorist attacks and horrible mass shootings, which seem to be increasingly commonplace in our society. There have also been natural disasters, hurricanes, tornadoes, tsunamis, uh, massive earthquakes. And then sometimes people are harmed and people die in what we might call accidents. No one was really at fault Perhaps, but some terrible accident occurred in which lives were lost. A plane crash, a car accident, or something like that. And when things like this happen, it's not unusual to hear questions like these. Why did God allow this? Or who is to blame for this? What did the victims do to deserve such a terrible experience or such an awful death? Well, human atrocities, natural disasters, and accidents are not limited to our own time. Such things happened in our Lord's day as well. So I've had us turn this evening to where we left off in our study of the Gospel of Luke. And here, chapter 13 begins with certain people bringing a report to Jesus about a terrible tragedy, an atrocity, actually, that was committed by Pilate. And then Jesus himself mentions in verse 4 a tragic accident that had occurred in which 18 people were killed. And it's against this background that Jesus uh, takes this opportunity to correct a common misconception. And then he also tells us the right manner 
in which such events ought to affect every one of us and the warning we should receive from them, particularly that they are a call to consider yourself, the frailty of your own life, and the certainty of your own death. And they are a reminder that unless we repent, we will all likewise perish. And so as we consider this call to repentance here, let's begin first by opening up the main features of the text itself. And first of all, we have the recounting of two tragic events. Uh, the first one is reported by Jesus to some who were present uh, when he was giving all of that teaching that we considered back in chapter 12. Verse 1 says, there were present at that season some who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. Now, why this was brought up at this moment, we're not told. But perhaps it was in response to what Jesus had just taught, you may remember, about discerning the times. He had spoken of that at the end of chapter 12. And perhaps they thought this to be an example of what Jesus was talking about, one of the signs of the times. Now, what event exactly were these folks referring to? Again, we know nothing more than what is mentioned here. Apparently, a group of Galileans had traveled to Jerusalem to worship and were offering up animal sacrifices at the temple. And while they were engaged in this very sacred act, they were viciously murdered by Roman soldiers under the command of Pilate. Why this happened, we don't know. Perhaps it was for political reasons. We know that there were certain tensions between uh, Rome and the Galileans at this time. We don't really know for sure. But this awful event was known and people were talking about it. It was a terrible atrocity. It was a bloody affair, so much so that their blood became mingled with the very sacrifices that they were offering to God. We might compare it to a church shooting. Folks in a church gathered to partake of the Lord's Supper, and someone comes in and starts shooting people. Someone has made the comparison. It would be as if terrorists came into a church and shot worshipers as they were partaking of communion, then mingled their blood with the communion wine. And then in verse 4, Jesus himself brings up another event, and this time a tragic accident. He mentions an event in which 18 people were killed when the Tower of Siloam fell on them and crushed them. Now, again, we don't have any specific information about this event other than what we are told here. Apparently, there was an accident. Perhaps the tower was being repaired and something happened, or there was some kind of hidden structural failure, but for whatever reason, it fell and 18 people died. And so we have these two tragic events that were very much on the minds of the people in that region of that day that Jesus was speaking to at that time. Secondly, we have our Lord's correction of a common misconception, a common misconception or a common assumption. These folks come to Jesus reporting what had happened to the Galileans who were murdered by Pilate, and Jesus knows what was commonly thought the common assumption. The common assumption among many of the Jews of that time was that if something terrible like this happened to someone, it must be divine payback for some wrong that they've done, some wrong that puts them into the category of being greater sinners than others. So Jesus answers, and he says to them, do you suppose that these Galileans were Sinners were sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered such things. I tell you, no. And then Jesus himself brings up this other example of the 18 who were crushed 
when the tower of Siloam fell. And again, he says, do you think that they were worse sinners than all other men who dwelt in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. So to summarize, quoting Gooding, here's the situation. Believing as they did in God's providential government, Christ's contemporaries, like many before and since, were apparently inclined to think that the victims of these atrocities and disasters must have been guilty of extraordinary sins, which up to this point might have been kept secret, but which were now exposed by the special sufferings which God had allowed to come upon them as a punishment for those sins. Christ said that their interpretation is wrong. These folks who died in these tragic events were not greater sinners than others. Now, some important observations here about our Lord's correction of this misconception so we don't misunderstand. First, Jesus never denies the providence of God in these situations. He's not arguing that these tragic events or events that God was unable to prevent. His hands were tied. Uh, Stuff happens. There's nothing God could do about it. No, that's not what he's saying. Jesus believed and the Bible teaches that God is sovereign and that God in his sovereignty is working out his holy purposes in the world and nothing ever happens outside of his providence. Now, there's often great mystery in God's providence. For example, the scriptures are clear that God is not the author of sin and he never makes people do evil things. But at the same time, even sinful atrocities do not happen outside of his providential control. And the same is true with tragic accidents. And we may never know in this life why God has purposed and allowed certain things to happen. But we know that God is good and that he is infinitely wise and that he has his purposes, which are ultimately for his glory and for the advancement of his kingdom, for the ultimate good of Christ and his cause in the world. And we may never understand until the last day, but we must trust him even when we can't understand. Secondly, Jesus also doesn't deny that atrocities and disasters sometimes are sent by God on certain people or nations as a temporal judgment for particularly heinous sins. He doesn't deny that this does sometimes happen. We see this sometimes in Scripture. You remember Nadab and Abihu who offered strange fire on the altar of the Lord and fire came down from heaven and struck them dead. Uh, We've been reading in the book of Ezekiel how that the Babylonians were raised up and they overthrew the nation of Israel and the nation of Jerusalem and took them into captivity. And that happened as God's judgment upon that nation for their wickedness. So Jesus is not denying those things, but he's making the point that this is not always the case And it was not the case in these two situations. Indeed, it's very rarely the case. The final judgment of men is not in this life. It's in the world to come. And in fact, the scriptures are very clear that sometimes in this life, the righteous suffer more than the wicked do. Bad things don't just happen in this world to the wicked. They sometimes happen to God's people. Again, the final judgment is not yet. John Milton, the English blind English poet, he wasn't always blind, but later in life he became blind. The English poet who wrote really one of the most epic poems ever written. It's right up there with, with the Iliad and, and great epic poems like that. Uh, and, uh, you, some of you may be aware of it or have read it, Paradise Lost. How many of you heard of that? It's, it's a tremendous 
Well, by the way, let me just say this. I just recently read that he wrote it after he had become blind by dictating it to his daughters. Now, can you imagine writing a, uh, you know, dictating a poem like that in that kind of detail to your daughters as they're writing it down? But anyway, well, Milton had been a supporter of the Puritan Parliament during the English Civil War. And when he was old, he was visited by Charles II, the son of the king that the parliament, under the leadership of the army of the parliament, Oliver Cromwell, uh, had defeated and had beheaded. And so now he's come to visit with Milton, the son, who's now back on the throne as the monarchy has been reestablished. And the king said to him, your blindness is a judgment from God for the part you took against my father. And Milton replied, if I have lost my sight through God's judgment, what can you say of your father who lost his head? <laughs> in other words, if you're going to reason in that way, that's what it leads to. But no, we're not to view earthly suffering and tragic events as indications that those who suffer these things are greater sinners than others. And certainly not that they are necessarily greater sinners than I am. But instead, Jesus tells us now, thirdly, the right use we are to make of such events. He tells us that we are to view them as a call to repentance. And Jesus answered and said, verse 2 to them, Do you suppose that these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered such things? I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them. Do you think that they were worse sinners than all other men who dwelt in Jerusalem? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And Jesus is telling us that tragedies and atrocities and accidents and deaths are a reminder to all of us of the frailty of our lives, that we have no promise of tomorrow. That these events, when they happen to others and not to me, do not mean that I'm somehow better than they are. No, they are a reminder of what I myself deserve, and even worse, and have no guarantee will not happen to me as well. They are a prelude to a greater judgment to come for us all. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, no, not one. We have all forfeited any right to anything from God but eternal judgment and damnation. The real question we should be asking is not, why were these Galileans the victims of such violence, but why didn't it happen to me? It's not, why did that tower fall on the 18, but why did it not fall on my head? Why have I been spared until now? I was reading someone commenting on how Jonathan Edwards once asked his congregation to give him one reason why God had not destroyed them since they got up that morning. He asked them to consider that every, mo every moment that we live, every luxury that we enjoy, every blessing that we participate in is a gift of God's grace. We don't deserve it. It represents to us God's willingness to be patient with a race of people who have rebelled against him. The penalty for sin is death, eternal death and suffering in hell. And yet we continue to sin and become astonished 
and offended when God allows tragedies to happen. Quoting R.C. Sproul, commenting on our text, Every human being walks in this world under the sentence of death. Every human being has violated God and His holiness. The very fact that we are allowed to live from moment to moment is because of His grace. But God's grace and mercy and patience are designed to lead us to repentance. And you see, that's where, this is where Jesus is going with this. The message we are to get when such tragedies happen is this. Repent before it's too late. Repent or you will all likewise perish. And he doesn't mean by that that we will also die in some tragic event. No, he's talking about the final judgment. Jesus has been describing in the previous chapter leading up to this what is really contained in this word perish, what he means in this context. He's speaking about the last day. He's speaking about the eternal damnation of the lost on that day. So as I try to bring all of this together then, having looked at the text, what's the message of this passage for each of us this evening? Well, it's very simple. It's a call to repentance. It's a reminder that without repentance, we will perish. That repentance is an absolute necessity. And the Bible is very clear about this. Not just here, but we see this throughout the Bible. We could look at the Old Testament, but just limiting myself to the New Testament. For example, this was the message of John the Baptist. Matthew 3, 2, John came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is the message of the Lord Jesus. Matthew 4, 17, from that time Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In Mark 2, 17, Jesus said, I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to what? I came to call sinners to repentance. And when giving the Great Commission in Luke 24, 46 to 47, he tells us the content of the message that we are to preach. Thus it is written, thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations. Accordingly, the message of the Apostle Peter on the day of Pentecost was a message of repentance. After preaching the first sermon under the auspices of the Christian church, certain people, you remember, cried out, Sirs, what must we do? And Peter said, Repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And then this message of repentance was preached by the great Apostle Paul as well. It was Paul who stood on Mars Hill before all of the, uh, the philosophers there at the Areopagus, and he declared to the men of Athens that God commands all men everywhere to repent, Acts 17.30. Well, I trust then we're all convinced of the absolute necessity of repentance. There is no forgiveness, no salvation, no eternal life where there is no repentance. And my friend, have you realized this? Jesus says it very plainly here in our text. Except you repent, you will perish. Think about that word perish. What a horrifying word. Contained in that little word is an eternity of anguish 
an unspeakable torment in a place that Jesus in the Bible calls hell. That place, Jesus tells us, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, where the fire is not quenched and there is no escape and it will never end. We're given a glimpse of what it means to perish in Revelation 14.10 where we read that they shall be tormented with fire and brimstone and the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever and they have no rest day or night. Think about it. A thousand years in torments past and gone, 10,000 more afresh are coming on. And when these thousands all their course have run, the ends no more than when it first begun. Have you realized, my friend, that without repentance, you'll perish? Without repentance, you'll be damned to suffer in hell for eternity. You know, there are many things in this world you can do without. You can do without your cell phone. Uh, You can do without your computer. Without your video games, uh, you can do without nice clothes and money and friends and good health. Some of those things are nice to have. Some of them are wonderful to have, but they're not necessities. But repentance is an absolute necessity. And without it, the fact is, the fact is, it would be better if you had never been born. And let me just pause to say that here's one of the things that ought to break our hearts. You can go to churches throughout our country. I'm talking about evangelical, professedly Bible-believing churches where people have been under so-called Bible instruction for years. And yet there is this great ignorance about repentance. You never hear about repentance. It's rarely, if ever, preached. People go to church all their lives so they can hear a message like this tonight and say, you know, I've never heard this before. They've heard all kinds of teaching about when the Lord's going to come back and the meaning of the ten horns on the second beast and how to be successful in life and all kinds of other things. But when it comes to this fundamental foundational issue of the necessity of repentance, it's hardly ever mentioned. And this is truly tragic. For to be a stranger to the experience of repentance is to be lacking in that which is an absolutely essential aspect of salvation, not as the ground of our acceptance with God, which is only found in the perfect obedience and atoning blood of Jesus Christ, but repentance is a foundational aspect, listen, of what that salvation is that Jesus Christ gives and the manner in which we experience it. Okay, you say, I see that. I see that repentance is an absolute necessity. But now this raises some questions. And the first very obvious question is, what exactly is repentance? What does it mean to repent, as Jesus calls us to in our text? Well, I want to spend some time on this question. There can be a lot of confusion sometimes, I think, among God's people about this matter of repentance. And I want to begin with some negatives. What repentance is not, okay? First of all, what it's not. First, Repentance is not coming down to the front during an altar call at the end of a church service. Now, sometimes people do that. Uh, Who do that really do repent and really are living a life of repentance. But the physical act of coming down to, quote, make a decision for Jesus, unquote, or the mouthing of a prayer that someone puts into your mouth is not necessarily repentance. Repentance is a matter of the heart. 
that shows itself in an ongoing change of the life. Secondly, repentance is not penance. And by that I mean a one-time act or feeling. As you know, in Roman Catholicism, penance is an act that you do uh, to express some kind of regret for sin or to compensate for it. But that's not repentance. Repentance is not an external act. It's not a passing pain of regret that makes you feel a little bit better and somehow makes up for your sin. No, repentance is the turning around of the whole life through faith in Jesus Christ, faith union with Jesus Christ. It was against this confusion in the Roman Catholic Church of acts of penance with true repentance that Martin Luther wrote, mind you, as the very first of his 95 thesis that he posted on the door of Wittenberg Chapel. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he willed the entire life of believers be one of repentance. Which leads to a third negative. To repent is not something that you must do, something that you then must accomplish before you have warrant to come to Christ and to trust him for salvation. No, repentance is inseparable from faith in the gospel. Biblical repentance is fueled and inspired by faith in the gospel. It is a gospel repentance. We must repent, but repentance is part of the salvation that Christ freely gives to sinners. It takes place within the context of faith's grasp of God's free and glorious grace in Jesus Christ. I'll say more about that in a moment, but that's very important. If you, if you think repentance is something that you do before you come to Christ, that I can't come to Christ until I know I've repented, you'll never come to Christ because you'll never know that you've repented enough. And you'll never be able to repent without believing in Jesus Christ. You might have a, a legal kind of repentance, a regret, a remorse. There can be conviction of sin, but not repentance, as I'm going to show you what repentance is. You're not going to have repentance apart from union with Christ apart from faith in Christ. And sometimes people, there's even some, I think, some very, even in, in some of the literature that's very popular, even among in Reformed circles sometimes, even in Reformed preaching sometimes, there can be a kind of preaching that basically sounds like it's saying, you must repent before you come to Christ. But that's not, that's not biblical. You'll never repent without coming to Christ. In fact, I would want to say to you, try to repent without coming to Christ and see if you can. You won't. So we consider what repentance is not. Now, positively, what repentance is. What does it mean to repent? Sometimes God's people can be afraid of this word, repent. What does it mean? Well, the Greek word Jesus uses here is a form of the verb metaneo, to repent. The noun form, repentance, is metanoia. It literally means to change your mind. But it's used in the New Testament not merely in the sense of changing your opinions about something. It carries the idea of one's whole heart and purpose being changed. A changing or a turning around of your thought and attitude and purpose with respect to sin and with respect to God. And sometimes the word is used together with the word faith. Repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Repent 
and believe the gospel. Repentance, turning away from sin. Faith, trusting in Christ to save me from sin. Repentance is the end. Faith in Christ is the way by which we're enabled to do so. But at other times, as it is here, it's used alone to refer to the whole of our turning from sin to God through Christ with faith presupposed. The whole of the sinner's turning from sin to God through faith in Jesus Christ is described by this word repentance. In other words, it's a way of describing the whole of conversion. Conversion, together with the new life of sanctification that flows from that. As I pointed out before, there's perhaps no better or more precise definition of repentance uh, than the one that's given in the shorter catechism. You remember that? In answer to the question, what is repentance unto life? The catechism answers, repentance unto life is a saving grace whereby a sinner, out of a true sense of his sin and apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ, does with grief and hatred of his sin turn from it unto God with full purpose of and endeavor after new obedience. Now, that's a very wonderful and biblical definition of repentance. Now, for clarity's sake, let me just take that and break it down, okay, into four parts. Now, don't think of these as stages of repentance or steps of repentance, but think of them as ingredients, okay, ingredients of repentance. If you open up a repenting heart and you analyze it, these four things will be there. Uh, This is what is there when a person repents, and a person who has repented is a person who's still repenting. It's a life of repentance, As long as we still have remaining sin and we're not perfectly sanctified yet, repentance remains as the ongoing experience of the Christian. So you don't have to look back into your past to discover if you've repented. If you have, you'll still be repenting and you'll know these things that I'm going to describe here in your own experience now. These things mentioned in the statement of the catechism. So what are its ingredients? Well, first of all, repentance presupposes an awareness of my guilt and sinfulness before God. What the catechism calls a true sense of sin. A person who repents is a person who in at least some real measure sees and feels himself to be an unworthy, ill-deserving sinner. He has been made aware of his guilt and of the evil of his sin and of his sinfulness before God. Now, that's not what repentance is, but this conviction of sin is certainly presupposed in repentance. You see, a man may be convinced of his sin and be to some degree aware of his sinfulness and never repent, but certainly there is no repentance without some awareness of what we need to repent of, you see. Jesus said, for I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now, what did Jesus mean by that? I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Well, we know that according to the Bible, no one is truly righteous, absolutely. The Bible says there is none righteous, no, not one. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So our Lord doesn't mean that there are some people out there who don't need to repent. But he's referring to those who consider themselves to be righteous. Those who still think, you know, I'm a good person, really. Oh, yes, I make some mistakes sometimes. I'm not perfect, of course. No one is, but I have a good heart, better than many, and God should be pleased with me. They're fine and they're okay in their own estimation of themselves. Well, Jesus said, I did not come to call the righteous, 
but sinners to repentance. Not the righteous, but those who have an awareness of their sinfulness and need. Repentance presupposes this awareness of guilt and sinfulness before God. Secondly, repentance springs from faith in Jesus Christ. It springs from this awareness of sin and faith in Jesus Christ. These are the roots from which it it springs. It involves believing that there is mercy with God, not just in general, but for me in Jesus Christ. What the catechism refers to as an apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ. That is a laying hold of, a believing reception of God's mercy in Christ Jesus. There can be no repentance without faith in the gospel. We must remember that saving repentance is a gospel repentance that is preached in connection with the setting forth of the person and the work of Jesus Christ, the Savior of sinners who is given to mankind as our Savior to save us from our sins. Jesus is freely offered to sinners just as we are as a Savior from what? Sin. And its consequences. Not just a savior from hell, but a savior from sin and hell. The hell that it leads to. He came to save us from sin's guilt and condemnation. And from the power of sin over us. And to reconcile us to God. You shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Matthew 1, 2. God having raised up his servant Jesus, sent him to bless you. How? In turning every one of you from his iniquities. Acts 3.26. Christ is offered to us in the gospel not just as a savior from hell so we can go on living in sin and rebellion against God. He's offered as a savior from sin, including the hell to which it leads. That's the kind of salvation that God offers to us in Christ. And faith is the empty hand that receives Christ as he's freely given to me in the gospel to save me from sin. Therefore, the very act of receiving Christ and trusting in his promise to save me implies and involves the beginning of repentance. Without faith, you will never repent. There may be remorse over your sin. There may be self-pity with regard to your sin. There may be fear of judgment because of your sin. But without faith in Christ, remorse over our sin becomes nothing but a kind of penance by which we hope to make up for our sin by feeling bad about it or by appeasing God in some way. Faith is inseparable from repentance. And there are at least a couple of reasons for that. First, an awareness of your guilt and sinfulness before God without faith in the gospel will only cause you to draw back from God, not draw near to him. It will produce despondency and despair like it did with Judas. He regretted what he had done. But what did he do? He went out and he hanged himself. Or having no hope of being forgiven and of changing, that despair will just harden your heart into a more determined course of sin in your sinful ways. It will not melt your heart in repentance. It will harden your heart in desperate despair. Another reason there can be no repentance without faith in Christ is that it's faith alone that unites us to Jesus Christ and his life-giving spirit by which alone we can repent and begin to live a new life of obedience. This is we speak of justification, 
It's forgiveness, God counting us righteous because of Christ. And we speak of sanctification, that process of God beginning to make us like Christ. We speak of those as the double gift that we receive in union with Christ. Well, in the same way, union with Christ by faith is the source of both forgiveness and repentance. Not that we ever have one without the other in the order of time. They always come together. But there is a certain cause and effect relationship between them. And both become ours by virtue of being united to Jesus Christ through whom his life-giving spirit begins to flood our life and begin to change our heart and to make us new. I come to Jesus as a sinner. Faith lays hold of the free mercy of God in Christ who accomplished everything necessary for my salvation. I come to him as a lost sinner, guilty, defiled, covered with filth and guilt, deserving nothing but God's wrath. And the faith that receives Christ as mine so unites me to him that the life of repentance begins to flow and to come forth in my life. So we see here these twin realities that form the soil out of which repentance grows. The awareness of my guilt and sinfulness before God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as he is freely given to me by God in the gospel to be my Savior from sin. And this reminds us of the two means by which repentance is produced. What are the two means? The law and the gospel. The law is the means by which sinners are convicted of the evil of their sin and of their need of a Savior. And the gospel is the means by which they are sweetly drawn to Jesus Christ and are united to him by faith. But now we get to the real heart of what repentance itself looks like. If we think of repentance as a tree, the roots of repentance are the awareness of my sinfulness before God and faith in Jesus Christ. But now what's the tree of repentance that springs out from these two roots? Thirdly, repentance involves a change of my affections and desires with respect to sin. As the catechism says, repentance unto life is a saving grace whereby a sinner out of a true sense of his sin and apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ, that's the roots of it, does with grief and hatred of his sin turn from it unto God. The man who repents, and he repents in a gospel way, believing in the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that man is grieved over his sins against God. He's unhappy with himself. It grieves him to think of how foolish he's been. There are feelings of self-abhorrence for having sinned against such a... It's not just a fear of punishment, but a feeling of self-abhorrence for having sinned against such a good and a gracious and a glorious God. It pains him to think about it, especially in light of what Christ has done for me and suffered for my poor soul, though I'm so undeserving. As Newton put it, A bleeding Savior I have seen, and now I hate my sin. Like the tax collector in our Lord's parable who smote upon his breast, like Paul in the consciousness of his remaining struggle with remaining sin in his heart, he cried out, oh, wretched man that I am. This is the man who repents and is repenting. Ezekiel 36, 31 describes this in figurative language, what God does when in union with Christ he gives forgiveness And repentance. God says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean. 
I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good, and you will loathe yourselves in your own sight for your iniquities and abominations. And then we have, fourthly, the result of repentance or the fruit of repentance. When a man repents, this repentance is not just the decision or the feeling of a moment. It results in a complete reversal of a person's life. Again, in the words of the catechism, repentance unto life is a saving grace whereby a sinner, out of a true sense of his sin and apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ, does with grief and hatred of it do what? Turn from it unto God with full purpose and endeavor after new obedience. This is the fruit of the tree of repentance. Where there is repentance in the heart, there is change in the life, a change in one's purpose and practice. Think of the prodigal son. It's a very beautiful picture of repentance. We say that a picture is worth a thousand words. So think about the prodigal son. Luke 15, 17 to 19, we read, but when he came to himself... There's now, he's come to an awareness, you see, of his sinfulness. He said, how many of my father's hired servants have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And then verse 20, we have him actually doing what? Getting up and returning home. What prompted him to arise and return to his father? It was those twin realities we were talking about. An awareness of the evil of his sin. I have sinned against heaven. No more worthy to be called your son. And there was also at least some measure, some ray of faith and trust that his father was such a one who in his mercy would receive him if he returned. And there was grief and hatred of his sin. But what was the fruit of this inward change of heart and purpose? He actually got up out of the hog pen, and he returned home to his father, gladly willing to submit to the government of his house. Psalm 119.59, I thought about my ways and turned my feet to your testimonies. And so when a sinner repents, the fruit will be the purpose and endeavor to obey God and to obey his Savior in everything. The writers of the catechism are very careful and clear in the way they state this. They speak of the purpose and endeavor after new obedience. Now, on the one hand, this language is careful to guard against the error of perfectionism. The believing, repenting sinner, the Bible's clear, the Christian's still plagued with remaining sin. We don't obey God perfectly yet in this life, and this grieves him. And that's why repentance is the ongoing experience of the Christian. Yes, but it's the purpose and endeavor of his heart not to sin. He often fails, but he has a heart that wants to obey and seeks to obey and is greed whenever he fails to be what he ought to be. There is an irreconcilable warfare with sin in the heart of the repentant person. The one who knows something of this repentance that is a gift of God that's given to us in Christ. But this language the purpose and endeavor after new obedience, it also guards against self-deception. Someone claiming to repent, to be repentant when there's no real change. 
at all. There's no forsaking sin, no fleeing sin, no fighting against sin. The direction of the life is still the same. But where there is repentance, there will be the purpose and endeavor after obedience to all of our Lord's will insofar as I presently know it. It's not a pick and choose kind of obedience which would show that the heart is still unrenewed, still unchanged. No, the repentant man can say with the psalmist, I esteem all your precepts concerning all things to be right. And I hate every false way. His heart finds an echo in the psalmist's prayer. Oh, let me wander not from your commandments. Make me to walk in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Direct my steps by your word, and let no iniquity have dominion over me, Psalm 119. And so, my dear friends, this is what repentance looks like. These are its ingredients. Now, the question I want to ask every one of you is, do you know anything of this in your own experience? Have you repented? Are you a repenting person? Jesus is very clear in our text. Unless you repent, you will perish. If you know nothing of repentance. My friend, what should you do if you know nothing of repentance? You know what you should do? You should run to Jesus Christ. And you should run to him for mercy and cry to him to have mercy upon your soul. I call upon you to repent. This day, this very night, Acts 5.31, we're told that Jesus Christ has been exalted by God the Father to give to sinners repentance and forgiveness of sins. And Christ is able and willing to save you and to enable you to repent if you'll only be willing to be done with your own ways and to have this Christ as your Savior. Christ came into the world to save sinners. He died for sinners. He rose from the dead and he lives and he's mighty and able and willing to save sinners who come unto God by him. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be like wool. His blood, as the song says, can make the foulest clean and his spirit can change the hardest heart. And what must you do that you may be united to this Savior and begin a new life of repentance and devotion to him? What must you do? You must do nothing but receive him as he is freely offered to you by God in the gospel. God says in the gospel, here is my son. I have sent him to save you. As we read in Acts, he sent his son to turn every one of you from your iniquities. He sent his son in order to make atonement for all of our sins against him, to fulfill the righteousness that we have uh, failed to do on our behalf, that we might be justified before him. He has made a full atonement for sin. No matter how great and how many your sins may be, they can all be forgiven. God says, in Christ I am reconciled. The wrath that you deserve has been propitiated. It's been endured by my son in the sinner's place, and I have raised him from the dead, testifying that his sacrifice is sufficient. I am satisfied with what my son has done. There's nothing else that needs to be done. All is ready as a free gift of my love and grace. Now will you be satisfied with him as well and come and take of the water of life freely? Will you not lay down your resistance 
come, that you might be forgiven, that you might be changed, be willing to repent. In other words, be willing to be saved from your sins. Stand off at a distance no longer. Come and receive this Christ as your own, and your sins will be washed away Cast as far as the east is from the west. I will remember them no more against you. And you'll not only be forgiven and justified in my sight. Christ will change you and enable you to begin to live a new life of repentance and devotion to me. He will save you now and forever all the way to the end. Come you sinners, poor and wretched, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus ready stands to save you, full of pity, joined with power. He is able. He is able. He is willing. Doubt no more. Come, you needy. Come and welcome God's free bounty. Glorify true belief and true repentance. Every grace that brings you nigh. Without money, without money, come to Jesus Christ and buy. And will you not say this evening... Indeed, Lord Jesus, I come. Just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, O Lamb of God, I come. Just as I am, poor, wretched, blind, sight, riches, healing of the mind, yea, all I need in thee I find, O Lamb of God, I come. And those of you who are in Christ this evening, we never get away from this. We never graduate from the school of repentance and faith. Faith and repentance are the two legs by which we walk all the way to heaven. One day, we won't have to repent anymore. Won't that be a great day? When we're with the Lord in glory and the new heavens and the new earth and all the vestiges of sin are removed forever and we're We're perfectly glorified in our glorified souls and bodies and there'll be no more of the tear of repentance, no more of the grief of repentance because there'll be no more sin and we will be like him for we will see him as he is. Bless his holy name. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you tonight for your word. We pray that you would bless your word, that it would accomplish that for which you have sent it out and we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. We hope you were edified by this message. For additional sermons, as well as information on giving to the ministry of Emmanuel Baptist Church and on our current building project, you can visit us online at ebcfl.org. That's ebcfl.org.